You're listening to Booth One. Yes, you heard right. You're listening to Booth One, the one and only podcast where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo, your hosts here. Frank, it's been too long since I've seen you. I believe you're going on another of your extended foreign vacations soon. I well, yeah, in June I'll be I'll be gone again. Tell the listeners where you're going. This is uh, fascinating. Stuff. This is going to be the Dalmatian Coast. We fly to Croatia, then we go to Kotor in Montenegro and then back up to Dubrovnik and then to Split and then Ljubljana in Slovenia where Melania Trump is from. I'll have to oh. check out any, <laughs> wow. any news that they've got about her. Yeah. And then we end up in Zag- yeah. Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia, and then fly home again. But we're doing Airbnbs, all Airbnbs. And nice. so it's three days in each place. And there are no trains or anything that go from those places. And I found this van service that will pick you up at the door of your apartment and then take you to the door of the next place. So, you know, on paper, it looks like it's going to be very smooth. It should be Fantastic. great. I've never been to any of those places. And you're I've going for, at, what, three weeks? It'll be about two and a half, yeah. Fantastic. If anybody knows where it is, you've got Italy, which is your boot, and on the one side, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. On the other side, you have the Adriatic. Adriatic. And so the whole Dalmatian coast, the whole Croatia, it lines the whole coast there, gets the sunsets. You know, the other side gets the sunrise, you get the sunsets on that side. Nice. So. And... I understand from our conversation before we started today that you're sacrificing something that's very near and dear to your heart to be here on the podcast today. What is it you're sacrificing? Well, I'm not sure people know about this, but the biggest thing in Europe is Eurovision. Oh, everybody knows about Eurovision. (laughs) They do? I believe so. How many viewers do they have for this? (laughs) Well, let me tell you what it is first. It is a singing competition where all the different countries enter a pop song three minutes-ish long. The top 10 out of 18 go to the final, and then this afternoon was the finals. And it's not broadcast oh, in the no, United States. No. So it is you, only you've broadcast. seen the preliminary rounds, yeah. and you're going to miss the finals? I am missing the finals. And the only way you can watch it online is if you have a VPN. I won't explain what that is, but people should know what that is. That's where you can say that you are not in the United States because it's blocked in the United States. You can say that your server is in England or Ireland or whatever. Why can't you get it in the United States? You used to be able to just get it online. You could just you know go online because they broadcast it live. But the, the, the channel logo two years ago decided to broadcast the finals on delay. And so they had the rights, so they had the U.S. blocked, except you could watch it on Logo. For some reason this year, Logo is not carrying it, and so you can't watch it blocked or unblocked or anything like that. You have to use a VPN. But this is one of the most watched shows in the world. It is. It is. (laughs) It's cats. What was that? Cats. Oh, it was the cat. Yeah. They knock things off shelves. That's one of the things they do best, actually. I like a chaotic scene, actually. It's more interesting. And I just keep the chaotic parts. That's, that's the secret to my success. Cut to chaos. 
it's like the most watched, one of the most watched events in the world. It is. Um, last year, the Super Bowl had 90 million viewers, and Eurovision had 187 million viewers, more than double, and that's with no one in the United States watching it. That's crazy. Um, so it is who do crazy. you think is going to win, based well, on your preliminary I'll tell you who, who has won. viewing? Celine Dion won it, and so she became a huge star. ABBA, ABBA, with very Waterloo. famously mm-hmm. won it before they were at anybody. That's what put them on the map. So I've seen two sets of eighteen, and I've seen the ten that go in the finals. However, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, and Spain, Spain, yes, they don't go to the prelims because they pay for it. And so they automatically go to the final, so I haven't seen theirs. I'm hoping somebody has something posted somewhere online. But, you know, not only am I missing that, but Madonna is performing. Just so, as a guest performer? As a guest performer. She's doing two songs, so I'm uh, missing all of that so I can come and, uh, and be with you guys. Well, uh, I appreciate you being here. <laughs> okay. And you've come to a good show. Our guest on the program today is the Chicago Treasure. And if you don't know his name... You are certainly familiar with his work if you watch television in any way, especially PBS. I'd like to welcome Dan Andrews to the program. Welcome to the booth, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much, Gary. You were a little bit late today because what did you go do with your family? I took my wife to Hamilton, the exhibition on Northerly Island as a birthday present. I think you're the first person I've met who's actually been to that thing. How was it? Well, I worry about that because they spent a lot of money on it. Sure. It wasn't super crowded. But it, it's a touring museum exhibition in a temporary structure, and it's very well made, well produced. And smartly done, so you're moving through with these headphones that automatically are triggered you get audio signals and stories as oh, you go, nice. and you can dig in as you go. But they have the small room, the large room, the compression, the release, the room where you wait to see the Battle of Yorktown, which is on a scheduled thing. But it's a big, beautiful room that you don't mind being in because it's a recreation of the party scene from Hamilton, which, as it points out, didn't really happen. So then you get to dig into the real history of the people who were at the party scene. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly historical, but... Obviously, because of the show, there are some show connections. Show connections, okay. all of, including find all our lies. That's like one of their selling points. Oh. We will tell you all the things we made up. If you continue, you'll see these little cards that say, Didn't, that wasn't true. That wasn't uh-huh. true. But it, it's chronological, so it's really a history of Hamilton, then a history of the beginning of this republic in depth. So, I mean, you're wow. looking at the Articles of Confederation, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists, and the original political parties. Very fascinating. Wow. Hamilton, yeah. the exhibition at Northerly Island. Including a hurricane, a room that is a hurricane. Oh, wow. But Fantastic. You're safe. You're safe, I promise. <laughs> Let me tell the listeners a little bit about you, Dan, and correct me if I get any of this wrong. Dan Andrews is an award-winning television producer, director with extensive experience in arts journalism and documentary work. We're going to talk a lot about that in a few moments. By the way, if you hear a little meowing in the background, my producer and I just got a new cat, and this is our first podcast with her. She's very people-cat-oriented, people-oriented cat. Yes, yeah, so she's, she's cat. almost so she's she's extremely right affectionate. Next to us here, yeah. yeah, yeah, she's saying hello to Dan right now. Dan's half-hour documentaries on Robert A. M. Stern and Michael Graves were aired nationally on PBS. His short PBS documentary on Gene Gang was featured in the Architecture and Design Film Festival, which I had no idea there was such a thing. <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> wow, I guess there's a film festival for everything. Must be. You go to a lot of them. Have you ever been to this one? Not to an architecture. 
architect. No, not, not to the it's architecture and great. design it, film festival. It was briefly in Chicago, but it's New York and L.A. and at one point Chicago. I went to the New York one. It was a blast. Uh, well, he has won five. Well, let me correct that. You've now won seven Emmys. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. God. Two since the cat arrived. Those are the most. <laughs> <laughs> You're just racking them up. Yeah. The Invisible Hand architect Thomas Beebe featured a short version of the story of the Chicago 7. Yes. Uh, other documentaries include Beauty Rises, Four Lives in the Arts, which I just watched this morning. Terrific stuff. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Du Sable to Obama, Chicago's Black Metropolis. I was a co-producer, co-writer on that. Out and Proud in Chicago. Again, co-producer, co-writer. And Chicago by Boat, The New River Tour with Jeffrey Bear. The 2005 version, there are now three. So the most recent one is not mine. <laughs> if you've, uh, if you mine's ever, classic, though. If you're not <laughs> from Chicago and you're listening and you've never well, taken the, archi- the architectural boat mm-hmm. tour, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. you must, must do that. Even if you are from Chicago. Chicago and you've never taken it. No, it's amazing. Yeah. I took it just last year. And on a beautiful day, there mm-hmm. could not oh. be a better way to spend an and afternoon. And here's what's interesting. You need to take it more than once because I've taken it twice now and the tour was completely different with the two different people. Yeah, because the guides know different things about mm-hmm. different uh, structures. They do. Fantastic and one of them stuff. was a booze cruise. Oh, yeah. So that was fun. <laughs> Dan, you're a graduate of New York University's Titch School of the Arts. Andrews has been a full-time employee of WTTW Channel 11 right here in Chicago since 2000, almost 20 years now. Correct. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your journey. You grew up here, obviously, in in the Chicago area. Uh, What led you to New York City and film school? Well, I grew up, my mother was an arts journalist, and my father, a writer, PR guy. And my mom was on the North Shore. She worked for Pioneer Press. Her name is Dorothy. Dorothy Andrews, yeah. Yeah, she was the longtime uh, music critic for the Pioneer Press. So that meant I got to, well, I was at Ravinia at the age of eight. <laughs> yeah, wow. right, learning about the soloists and the people like the Sirkins, like, oh, there's the conductor and the son, and Peter's hair is too long, but he plays Beethoven so well, blah, 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 <laughs> all this kind of stuff, right? And, and theater, and so... Lots and lots of theater and lots and lots of music and, you know, go to an art gallery and look at a piece of abstract sculpture and whatever. So it was immersion in that because of what she did. That was kind of the beginning. And everybody loves movies. My family was, were, you know, movie, movie nuts. And I, somewhere along the line, fell in love. Well, I can t- actually, it's, it's sort of interesting. It's Channel 11. So I loved movies and I loved Hitchcock, and I loved movies where people were being chased and, you know, looked like they were going to die. That was one of my favorites, <laughs> like, car, like the movie Z. You know, uh, the guy's running from the car the whole time. You're like, oh, my God, that could be me, you know. <laughs> I'm so persecuted. <laughs> and uh, North by Northwest, the plane coming after Cary Grant. Uh, oh, yes, that uh-huh. could be me. Channel 11 had a series. The L.A. critic, Charles Champlin, ran this series where they showed films from the Janus Film Collection, which is kind of the core of the Criterion Collection at this point. They showed them on Channel 11. Well, they showed them on public television for an entire year. And the schedule was published in the paper, and I remember cutting it out and taping it up in the kitchen so I could watch everything. And it was mm-hmm. films by Truffaut and Renoir and Kurosawa and Polanski and the Czech filmmakers and Eisenstein. And they were rebroadcast, so I would sometimes watch these films four times in a weekend. Oh, wow. You know, and I just became enamored with it, deeply enamored. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And the film that made me want to become a filmmaker was Potemkin by Sergei Eisenstein. Really? I think in 1925, 26, silent film about a mutiny on a ship. 
I think it's maybe 65, 70 minutes long or something. But that movie made me want to make movies. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Something about it felt, first of all, it was like revolution. Yeah. And Chicago, the Chicago I grew up in, was both this place of a vibe of a certain sort of beauty and culture and just horrible political violence. I grew up and there were assassinations every week and then there was, the city was on fire during the convention and then after that people were burning cop cars downtown and all this stuff makes a big impression on a kid. And I loved the city and then the city was like this place of rebellion and revolution and, and the whole culture was going through something. So Potemkin was a movie about revolution. It was, yeah. And all my heroes were on the FBI most wanted list at the <laughs> post office. You know. I would go to the Deerfield post office and steal their... <laughs> No wonder they weren't caught. Steal yeah. their wanted posters? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, it was the Weather Underground people, and they're like, oh, I want one of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Potemkin was a big turn-on. And it also was, I think, the vocabulary of it was so... I, I grasped it so quickly. It's, it's images. It's just mm-hmm. shots juxtaposed. So it felt like I could do it, which is nuts, because 13-year-olds can't do that unless they're Mozart, and I wasn't. So, but it was like you just take an image and an image and an image. You shoot pictures and you put them together, and you know this could be something. I don't know. That was that's the best I can do. But that was that's what did it. And then I was like, I got to go to film school. And then it was I have to go to New York University. And I think partially because of a fear of Hollywood, anxiety about that. Well, it sounds like you gravitated not towards the Hollywood type no, of film. No. So. Yeah. That would make more sense to go the other direction. And then you hear about people like Scorsese and then Jonathan Demme and all these yeah. people who graduated from NYU, so that seemed right. like the place to go. Coppola graduated from Hofstra. I'm like, what's that? What's Hofstra? Hofstra. I'll go to, yeah. I'm going to go to NYU. On Long Island, I think. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right, yeah. Where did you acquire your love of documentary-type filmmaking? Yeah. And have you wanted to make a fiction film? And if you did, or if you do, what would it be about? Oh, my God, you know. It's only because I'm um, as old as I am that I can bear this interview. Otherwise, at about this point, I'd be out the door. <laughs> Boys, you are digging too deep. So a documentary, I, I had zero interest in documentaries, except that occasionally I would watch certain ones about revolution. Let's just put it that way. The Battle of Chile by Patricia Guzman and stuff like this. But, like, no, documentary was not a calling at all. And I had a job at one point one of many jobs, but this was actually a better job than it sounds like it was. I was a producer-director at basically LaSalle Bank at the corporate sort of headquarters downtown. And there were two of us in a basement, a sub-basement, pardon me, at Adams and State in one of their buildings. And we were on-call media people, video people. And both of us were over-educated and ambitious and didn't want to just shoot meetings. So we hired people to shoot the meetings, and then we would try to figure out how to get a good gig out of somebody at the bank. And somewhere along the, the line, we got engaged with making these short documentary-like pieces to support various not-for-profits that the bank supported. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, Howard Brown Health Center, things like this. And we would make these short, I don't know, 5- to 12-minute documentaries, which were humanly fo- focused on people. Like, okay, uh-huh. your place is serving... Here's all your stats. Here's all, but actually, who are you serving? Who are they? What are they about as people? Let's find them. Let's go be with them. Make three to five minute portraits of these people. As we began to do this, and partially for budget and partially to keep ourselves busy, I began to run audio on these. So we'd hire really great shooters. Some of them have worked on the kind of fancy f- 
famous documentaries you've all heard of, and they were wonderful to work with, but sometimes I'd be running audio on a boom. And halfway through this like world of making these, and my ambition was to make narrative films, I turned to my partner and said, this is so horrible. <laughs> you know, and, he said, and he said, what's so horrible? I said, well, I'm really, really enjoying this. And I don't want to enjoy this. I don't want to enjoy <laughs> documentary filmmaking. And he said, well, maybe you could do both. Uh-huh. So that was it. I, like, I, I loved being in a moment with people in, their, in real environments where they were truly interacting, in conversation, in connection. And we did good work. And apparently I had some skill this way. And it's very late. This is super late. And that work that we did at the bank created a reel that got partially got me the job at Channel 11. But that's how I found documentary. So accidental. Nice. Yeah. And yes, I wanted to make narrative films. I made some as a student. I made some when I was teaching at Columbia College, when I was teaching everyone how to become a narrative filmmaker. I read somewhere that you worked on a film with Gary Sinise at one point. Is when that I right? When I was 18. When I was 18. 18 years old. You, yeah. met, you met them up here uh, in, Highland, in Park. Highland Park when yeah. they were still in the basement of the church. Mm-hmm. That was one of those like weekend home from school. Mom's going to go see a play. Let me go with her. I sat in this tiny room, and these, these actors were totally electrifying and mesmerizing and amazing. And one of them was Gary, and he was in a... This play was called Sandbar Flatland. The, some of them actually considered it a horrible mistake that they ever did it. I think it was amazing. It was kind of an anti-our town about this dysfunctional group of people somewhere in Illinois, in this little community where just weird shit happened and weird stuff happened. And Gary played a character, among other characters, who would climb to the hill every night at sunset. He had so much rage. He would climb the, and he would stand on top of the hill, and he would imagine, and then he would physically enact a sexual violation of the sun as it set. <laughs> mm. so, sounds very young Steppenwolf. And I was it just, does, I was does. so, I was like, oh my God, you are my actor. Yeah. Yeah, and we were, we were think, dreaming up a film, and we... How'd you get to meet him then, I'd say, after the show? I, to... went, I went up to him and said, hi, you want to be in my movie? Oh. He said, yeah. I mentioned earlier one of your films is called Beauty Rises, Four Lives in the Arts. It follows the story of four very different artists, a, a, a sculptor, a, a musician, a, a poet, professional poet and teacher, and a theater artist, Tell us about the making of that. I know that you wrote a blog about it. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you found these four subjects and and that journey. I knew that I was going to focus on an artist from Albany Park Theater Project, a woman named Laura Wiley. And Albany Park was very impressive to me. It still exists. It's a theater company that is a teen ensemble. All their work is devised. They are like documentarians themselves. The teens go into their community which is the most racially, ethnically diverse community in the city and I think possibly in the nation. And they talk to people about their lives, much of it about immigrant experience, and many of them are children of immigrants or immigrants, right? So many of their plays are about that. Their plays can be about their experiences of company members. Their work is just astonishing on every level, including formally, like really great theater. Like, oh my gosh, you know, you go in there and it's absolutely compelling as theater and it's also impressive that these kids do it and I knew I wanted Laura to be a subject because it was a, it was given there was a grant from the Illinois Arts Council a very beautiful gift 
to the station to make something. Mm. And with this is WTTW, WTTW to Channel 11, the PBS station here in Chicago. And it was mostly open-ended, except that they didn't want me to make it just about this theater company. Sure. So I said, well, okay, how about we look around the state and we find a diverse selection of artists who represent different disciplines. And so we ended up with the four we ended up with. So I needed... I needed a, a poet because if you have a piece about the arts and you don't have a poet in it, you are going to run into a lot of people who don't speak as well as poets do. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and I've done two documentaries like this where I involved a poet, and the title of both documentaries came out of the poetry. Came out of the poetry, uh, yes. Yeah, guess what, right. right? So that's always a good call because... Other artists maybe ain't so good sure. with the words as yeah. the poets is. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew that I wanted a poet. I called Kevin Stein, who was then the Illinois Poet Laureate. And I said, Kevin, I'm looking for a poet who isn't you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully a woman. Hopefully somebody of color. Hopefully they have some kind of, there's something about what they do that relates to place. And, and he said, uh, yeah, you know, thanks for the call, punk. But, okay, here's, here's who you should call. You know, it's in my book, Illinois Voices. I have that book, Kevin. Yeah. That's why I called you, you know. Read this poem. And so I called up Allison Joseph, who was a SIU, is an SIU professor and a poet. Southern Illinois University. Yeah. And that's great. Go Salukis. Then you're in, go Salukis. Then you're in Chicago, and you're down in Carbondale. And that's, you know, then now, now you've taken care of uh-huh. the far end of the state. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I, I'm a huge fan of jazz, but I was told about this little town called Pembroke, not far from Kankakee, which was a place where a lot of African Americans settled, part of the Great Migration in the 20s and 30s farmland, and that there was kind of this creativity there in, in the rural community creativity. Also incredible poverty, right? Like they were on the front page of the New York Times at one point as one of the poorest places in the country, and I went down wow. there. Yeah, and I met somebody there, and I met him at the gas station, which was the crossroads, and then he took me around town, <laughs> right. and he introduced me to people. And we're at the school, and on the wall of the school, there's an article about a native son who's a jazz musician from Chicago named Orbert Davis. And I went, oh, my gosh, you know, and I Trumpeter. wrote it down. Trumpet Trump- player, composer, band leader, creator of the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. And I, and I had interviewed him before. He had actually, Kurt Elling had connected me with with Robert Davis years ago. And Former guest on this show, Kurt Elling. Well, there you go. Well, mm-hmm. Kurt's got a great voice, better than mine, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Went, went to Orbit, and they said, what's your relationship to this place and to the region? And he told me these incredible stories about growing up there. And I said, well, are you willing to be part of this piece and explore that as part of the story of the documentary? And he said, yeah. And the other thing was to find people who were doing something like... So Laura Wiley was building to a premiere performance, the first full-length play that the company did which was called God's Work. Orbert was going to write a piece that was going to be at the Auditorium Theater. First time he was going to be at the Auditorium Theater with the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. I had to get Allison to figure out how to give me a premiere. We worked that out in the, in the film. Ultimately. Allison, Joseph, Joseph the poet. The poet yeah. And then the other artist I brought in was a, a sculptor named Dessa Kirk, who I'd met through other friends in the arts. Her work is really powerful, but her story is even more powerful. And Dessa essentially grew up in Alaska, a lot of horrifically traumatizing events as a teen, young female, young girl in Alaska that were pretty scary. And as she got out of that part of her life, which involved sexual exploitation, she began to make art. 
And ultimately, she is a kind of a crazy, ambitious person. She decided, you know, I'm going to find out what the best art schools are and get into them. And she did come to the School of the Art Institute and began making sculpture. And then ultimately, I'm going to be in Navy Pier on the big show without being invited. And she drove her truck up there and <laughs> like said, I'm going to go to this lot. And they're like, no, you're not. But come back next year. And you know, she had an incredible, I guess the word, simple word is chutzpah. Dessa's work is really compelling. And it has great sort of backstory as well. And I, I knew I, I wanted to involve her. And plus then, you would have somebody cutting steel. You would have sparks. You oh, would yeah. have, you know. yeah. Right. All different visuals. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful stuff yeah. that you shot. She was working in a steel warehouse yeah. on the west side, far west Pretty side? Pretty far west, yeah. Pretty far, yeah. And the K's, the K streets. streets. Yeah, absolutely. Right off of Roosevelt, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's a marvelous, marvelous piece. They are four really, really compelling people, and the storytelling is is just first class, Dan. You said people can find it online? You, you can. can. Yeah, you it's can. called Beauty Rises. Yeah. So just Google it, and you should be able to watch it. Yep. Cool. WTTW BD Rises, you'll find it. We sometimes do a segment on this show, as you know, Frank, called Good Times and Bum Times. Right. <laughs> There's a, a couple of stories that I wanted to impart to you. Speaking of traveling, Frank, a good time here is the 72-year-old French adventurer and former paratrooper has become the first person to cross the Atlantic in a barrel. <laughs> Dang, I wanted to be the first person to cross Well, it, you may <laughs> come back from the Dalmatian coast uh, yeah, really. in a barrel with, with 101 Dalmatians. That would be great. <laughs> Maybe. Jean-Jacques Savin set off from the Canary Islands in December in his 10-foot reinforced plywood vessel with no motor, oars, or sail and was propelled only by ocean currents. Wow. After four months at sea and having traveled 2,930 miles during which he survived on canned food, freshly caught fish, <laughs> and a block of foie gras. <laughs> he is French. Very French, yes. Got to have the foie gras. <laughs> I, I'm surprised there wasn't some wine involved in this trip, a case of champagne or something. Maybe. Savant finally reached the Dutch Caribbean island of St. Eustatius last week. It is the end of this adventure, he wrote on Facebook. Wow. In a barrel. How do you who get would, all that canned food for four months in a barrel? Well, who would think of such a thing? Yeah, I mean, good I for see, him. I can see going over it. Niagara Falls in a barrel, but people that have. just takes a couple minutes. In our bum time story, it's a bum time for AirPods. You know, AirPods, the uh, earbuds uh, yeah. made by yeah. by Apple. After a Taiwanese man accidentally swallowed one of his Apple Air <laughs> AirPod <laughs> earbuds, and he heard it playing music in his belly. <laughs> he recovered the device after it passed through his digestive tract. Mm-hmm. That's putting it mildly. Yeah. And found the AirPod still working with its battery at 41%. <laughs> so you can swallow an earbud. Too. I think it's hilarious that it was playing music in his, in his stomach. Well, why would it not? And all the way through his intestines. The new ones they have. We just got the new uh, Beats Pro, which have nine-hour batteries and actually fit in the ear and have a little thing around them so that they stay in your ear much better. They turn off as soon as they leave your ear. That Probably be because harder. of situations exactly Probably. like exactly. this, or if your dog eats them or something, <laughs> right. or your cat. Where is that darn cat? Yeah, where are my earbuds? <laughs> Let's talk about something that you're currently doing, Dan, for WTTW. You're doing a series called Stage Players, and it's a series of, from what I understand, they're called interstitials. Yeah, that's the term. It basically means something 
Super short that runs between programs. These are like hmm. 60 to 90 seconds long or something like that? They're 60 unless they're 65 or 68. Tell us what Stage Players really is. Who? How do you find the people that are on? And by the way, Frank, he's had a number of people on these profiles, these 60-second profiles that we've had on oh, this show, cool. like Malcolm Ewan, Isaac Gomez, the playwright, mm-hmm. uh, Lillian Brown, the director uh-huh. and actress. How do you choose your subjects? So, Do you listen to our show? And then I should have. <laughs> I should have listened to your show. Of course, you dig in for research. I'm looking at your show going, Jesus, I should have started here. I could have saved myself some headaches. <laughs> so stage players are uh, it's still going on. We're not done shooting. We just finished seven last week, seven new ones that'll be on starting next week. Wait, do you put them up as you do them, or are you waiting to start when you're all done shooting them? We have a schedule. So they began going up about two months ago. Okay, so some have already been up. Yeah, so the first six were on the air, and they went to the website. The website is WTTW.com. Com. Slash stage players. Okay. You can see them there. And then we did the next six, so it's groups of six, essentially, what they are, they're, they're pieces about people working in Chicago theater. They're, they're a way for our viewers and people on, in the community and, and who go to the website to have a real feeling for who's doing it right now, who's making theater in Chicago right mm-hmm. now. And our goal was really, my goal was really to make sure that it was not just about the artistic directors or the actors, but that this is about theater, right? What makes Chicago theater? Well, you have to have an artistic director of a a company, probably a good idea, right? You need an actor. You probably need a director. But what about an audience? How about an usher? What about uh, a stage designer? What about a costume designer? What about a a pit musician, right? What about the variety of kinds of uh, theater we have here? So somebody from musical theater, somebody from improv comedy, et cetera. So that was the thing. And so there's this kind of diversity of where people plug into theater. And the idea is it's, it's for everybody to plug into in different ways. And, and we need all, every single person you mentioned, you need in order to put on a successful production. Yep. If you don't have an actor, got no show. No writer, no show. No usher, chaos. No audience, no, no show. No audience, no show. <laughs> right. I, went to, I, I directed theater in New York for a while, and we did a show. We had four actors and one audience member. <laughs> And the audience member came. I didn't know this person, so it wasn't like the pals who show up. And like bought the ticket, read about it, and in the Village Voice showed up. And I went backstage and I said to the actors, "Okay, guys, there's one audience member. What do you want to do?" <laughs> and they said, "We want to do a show." I said, "All right." I came back out and I said, "All right, guy, here's the guy, show." Singular. <laughs> And they did it. And, you know, it goes back to that. I I don't know if it's Grotowski, but I like to think it was. I heard this about Grotowski saying the theater takes two people, basically a performer and an audience Mm -hmm. member. So stage players is really looking at all that and also attempting to represent the reality of what's happening right now in Chicago theater. I mean, Lillian Brown directing Lottery Day at the Goodman by Ike Holter was a pretty important thing. A big deal, sure. A very big deal. And if people don't understand what I'm saying, because you... Ike is an is a African-American playwright who's written this incredible group of plays about the 51st Ward, which is a fictitious ward in Chicago undergoing gentrification, a black community. Lillian Brown is a really experienced, really incredibly talented and award-winning director, black woman, and it's, it goes head-on right at the issue of like this juncture of change and loss and relationships and assumptions and, and privilege and all this stuff. And, you know, at the Goodman, and 
that's a big deal. And it's not a, it's not a report on where Chicago theater is. It's not about the Goodman or Steppenwolf or, or Ike's play, right? But all that stuff comes through when you start to talk to the people. So that was kind of the goal. And it's the year of Chicago theater. I don't know if you've heard that It one. is the year yeah. of Chicago theater. Yeah. We had Commissioner Mark Kelly on the show oh, yeah. um, a couple of months ago uh, talking about that very, very thing. It did, yeah. So upcoming is a professional understudy. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Um, uh, Blair Thomas, who's a puppeteer and the creator oh. of the International Puppet Festival. A fight choreographer from Babes with Blades. Oh. Babes with Blades, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is an all-female company that deals with stage combat. Stage combat a lot. Yeah, nice. yeah I've seen one of their shows. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they're fantastic. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're moving around town. You've done a number of documentaries uh, about architecture. Was that also instilled in you, a love of architecture as a child by your mom and your dad? And the family Did friend who studied with Mies Vandro at IIT. That would be more to the point. Yeah, I think Chicago has, is an industry town, right? And what's our industry? One of our big industries. It's architecture. I think learning about architecture in Chicago is um, super easy to do. My grandmother was talking to me about architecture when I was a kid, saying that our city was more beautiful than Paris. Uh-huh. Mm. which she had never been to. She was from downstate Illinois. I used to say, Grandma, you've never been to Paris. Um, but she was very proud of the classical edifices that came out of the fair. The World's Fair you know, was a big yeah. deal to her yeah. because my great-grandfather had gone there and came back and told the little, the little town all about this great, beautiful neoclassical city. So, I mean, architecture in Chicago is a, is a big deal, and then you learn and you get pointed out that this is the you know, beginning of modernism with Meets Vandero's work of, of the kind of modern post-war modernism. And so Chicago is it, right? And yeah. you learn a ton just being here. So the joy of making those pieces about architects, which is really what they are, they're about the people, is exploring that through the, the biography of these people, the personalities, their, their passions. And I like to begin a piece about something like architecture with something that people can connect with meaning not the building necessarily, but the passion of the person. So Robert Stern loves Fred Astaire movies. And, and everybody and, loves Fred Astaire movies. Yeah. And one of the docs I watched was about Michael Graves, yeah. who loves, as I do, Peeps. Yes, he loves Peeps. Do you like the Peeps, Frank? Those marshmallow things on oh, Easter? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, only like them when they're stale and hard. Yeah, yeah. I can't stand it when they're soft and mushy. We're high-fiving here. Yeah. I have a technique <laughs> called staling the peeps. Oh. The minute I get a box or a package of peeps, I take a knife and I make a little slit in the side. Actually, I kind of slit the whole package. Then I leave them on the counter oh, for yeah. a few days. So uh-huh. nice and, and they get nice and chewy and yeah. crispy. Those are good. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, so the, the Michael Graves piece, he's famous as a designer as well as an architect. So he did all this stuff for Target that made him kind of a household name, including teapots and teapots and toasters yeah. and things like that and he was great on commercials he just had this great deadpan smartness that worked really well great designer but he was also stricken with a strange illness so the last decade or plus of his life he was in a wheelchair mm. and he that shifted his entire design practice and he began to design with a great sensitivity to the needs of people like himself and that's where we began the documentary is with an Iraq war Yes. Vet, yes. Who had lost half a leg to a landmine looking around a house that Michael had designed. So no, it begins with, no. with that. It doesn't begin with right. 
even with the peeps. I mean, I know peeps. Well, I think what peeps, peeps have to do with it. Yeah, well, it's populist, baby. You know, oh. everybody likes or knows a peep. I don't think they'll like him, but they sure know him. Oh, I see. Someone yeah. else he was interviewing in this film mentioned that Michael Graves had peculiarities. I think it was like, Fran Lebowitz. I think it might have been Fran Lebowitz. <laughs> it was, yeah. She would pick up on that. Yeah. She did not care for the peeps either. No, she, she, she mentions it with great disdain yeah. that he liked them. Let's go back to growing up here in Chicago. This is a question I've asked a number of guests, and I'm always fascinated by the answer, if there really is an answer. You mentioned you were big into film, even as a young child. What did you pretend as a child? Were you putting on shows? Were yeah. you Were you making films? The films later, but as a kid, we'd go to the Goodman and then come back, and we would <laughs> act it turn, out. <laughs> yeah, we would turn the closet, which was like had a little kind of it was like a behind a wall, so it went deep. You could put the toy box up the front there, and it created a stage. You could stand on that, and my brother and I would perform improvised gibberish for my mom, who would applaud. <laughs> I, we, uh, yeah, we did that. <laughs> did she uh, write reviews about <laughs> yeah. um, your pieces? Uh, no, no, no. At that point, she was still just typing for a living, I think, because she had little kids. <laughs> I, so yeah, she I see. Yeah. But her review would have been fabulous, wonderful, fabulous. Not oh, to be missed. Yeah, not, not to be yeah. missed. Run, yeah. don't walk. Yeah, yeah. right. The, the, it's, a, it's a short run. <laughs> Lim- short run. Limited engagement, yeah. we'd say, in the business. <laughs> I grew up half a block from the Catholic Church. We were Catholic. We used to do a lot of imitating the priests of communion with our so bed sheets. Church, and we huh? played church. Yes, we played <laughs> church. It was a time of astronauts. We would be in the backyard on the moon. The backyard in Chicago was the kind of backyard I like, maybe about as wide as this room, which is maybe about 14 feet wide, maybe 12, 16. In other words, not much of a yard because who the heck wants to cut it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like creating the stage out of your closet, though. That's yeah. kind of cool. And then when we moved to the suburbs, there was a lot more warlike hide and seek, and you know, mm. we did throw dummies off the roof at home to scare my mom. <laughs> dummies. Yeah. Well, you would dress, you would kind of stuff your clothes while you were up there on the roof cleaning out the gutters, and then throw it off the roof and scream. So she'd be in the kitchen or yes. living room, and all of a sudden a body would fall. Yes. <laughs> with our voice, with our voice attached. There were four boys. I'm sorry. There were four boys. Oh, there in your were family. Four, yes, there were four of us. And where do you come in? One, I'm two, the three. oldest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Reluctant. So were you also the ringleader of that kind of stuff? The, the short answer is, yeah. <laughs> but when it doesn't seem like a good idea, I'll resist until there's not a better idea than that. Well, let's do that. So. And you could coerce the brothers because they were younger. Mm-hmm, so right. we're doing this. Yeah. And they're like, okay. I know you both go to the movies quite a lot. You mm-hmm. love film. Do you like going to those places like the Arclight where there's big lounge chairs and, well, I don't think there's waiter service, but you can you Oh, know, some of them sit. have waiter service. Most of the theaters Do you like are doing like those? that. Well, most of them are like that. They're trying to make it as comfortable as your living room because most people have a Lazy Boy lounger and a big screen TV, so yeah. why would you go to the theater? So. Why I bring this up is because there I hate has it. been... I hate it. Do you, you hate it. Do you, would you, do do you remember rev- the 400 Theater in Sheridan? I do. Of course. Yeah, where you basically, there was a 25 layers of crap on the floor. Yep. yep. Yeah, and half the seats were broken. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I like that. That's your yeah. kind of yeah. film-watching environment? But see, those kind of theaters had the better movies. Yes, you know, they did. If you want to watch Spider-Man, you go to AMC. If you want to watch... You well, know, I saw Eraserhead there. That's where I saw Eraserhead. Eraserhead, yeah. you, got it, you yeah. have to go there. They're yeah. not going to show it at those places. No. 
I bring this up because in what might be the best thing to happen to Hangover since Bloody Mary's, a VIP bedroom cinema has opened up in Switzerland, complete with 11 double beds. Oh. Yeah. Why watch the movie? The VIP bedroom <laughs> cinema launched over the weekend in Spreitenbach and mm. invites customers to enjoy the latest film releases while snuggled up under a duvet. Tickets for the home-like cinematic experience cost 49 Swiss francs, which is about $47, oh, something okay. like that. I think I did the exchange But you're not rate. staying the night there. You're just watching the movie, lounging in a bed. Each bed comes complete with adjustable headsets, correct. Okay. Operators have reassured customers that the beds are freshly made in between <laughs> <My God>. screenings. <laughs> Venanzio de Baca. CEO of Pate Switzerland told local news that the hygiene aspect is very important to them. When asked whether he was concerned about whether the bedroom setting would encourage inappropriate activity between spectators, DeBacco said the company has tested the concept abroad and so far has, quote, had no problems so far. Hmm. Are the rooms uh, separate, or no? Or you're in a big room with a bunch of beds. You're in a big room. Oh, they've yeah. taken the seats out in the front, and they've put in these double beds that are sort of angled towards the screen. So you stay clothed, most likely, since there's somebody right next to you. You don't know. I'm guessing. Well, true. Yeah. Would you go to one of these, Frank? <sighs> If I was going to do that, I would go to one of the things with the lazy boy chairs. I don't think I want to be like in a bed. I'd rather be in a chair. You make films with your wife. You collaborate with her on yeah, this. Yeah, my wife, Ann Northrup, and I have been documenting the work of Albany Park Theater Project since 2006, since I worked on Beauty Rises. At one point, Laura and her husband, David Finer, the other co-artistic director, turned to me and said, you know this play better than anybody. Would you consider filming it for us? And I said, lots of guys can put a camera in the back of the room, David, you don't need me. Well, we've done that. So we started with God's work, and then we just have kept going. And there are anywhere from six to ten angles on the show and of camera angles. And, yeah, Feast was on, we aired it on WTTW, and it won me one of my Emmys. And yeah, it was cool. What's it like working with a spouse? I mean, is it an advantage because you kind of speak the same language, or is it like you can never get away from each other and you bring it home with you? Any close collaboration with anybody, any of the camera people I work with, editors, my associate producers, co-writers, co-producers, Jeffrey Bear, for example, as a host, any of these people, you work very closely with each other, you rely on each other, you support each other, you have a common vision, and you get under, you get under each other's skin. Okay. It's impossible to not have that happen, right? And the best you can do is you know, take the deep breaths and move forward and understand why you're there with those people and what the value of it all is. And that's part of being married, I think. So the part mm-hmm. of doing Absolutely. work together, yeah. We taught classes together as well. Okay. She's a very different vibe. Film classes. Yes, in different kinds of venues. Films, classes about films. Hmm. So it's not production classes, but about film. One of the things that I do is what I learned to do when I work with her is to like step back and actually let her begin because I'm really great at like adding the riffs on the side of me but if I if I'm in charge I don't make enough room for her so uh, so she has to go first uh-huh. and then you know things work much better and then there's really there's a, a combination of our elements and she's right. a good communicator she's careful slow and thoughtful that's good yeah yeah sometimes on our program and today is no exception we play a little game called chat pack where I have some questions 
that have been selected by my producer. I don't know what these are. They're sort of random. They're always really interesting, Frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like them. Would you uh, be interested in playing a, yes. a round with us? All right, I only have, well, I only have a few this time. I get to pick one. Pick one yeah, and right. read that off to us. If you could take any job for just one month, what job would you like to have? Assume you would have the skills and knowledge to perform adequately. The thing that comes to, off the top of my head immediately is, you know, conduct a, a symphony orchestra. Mm. Yeah, that's, Really? That, that's what popped into my head. I might be able to make that happen for you. I don't think it would be a good idea. I work for a symphony <laughs> yeah, orchestra. Yeah, I think it would be a bad idea. Yeah. I don't think you. You know, you have, have be, you have to be the lead. You have to, you know, you have to be like your wife out there. You no, I, I, I am perfectly thoughtful. capable of being the lead. If I'm, if I'm the lead and that's it, then I'll do it. But if I'm supposed to share that with somebody else, then it's more tricky. You asked mm. about how I share it, not about how I take it. That's no, true. I am the boss. There we go. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> unless I can't be. And that's our program for yeah, today. <laughs> yeah. And if I can't be, then I'll share, right? But if I'm in charge, then that's that. Uh-huh. End of story. So, so you'd like to conduct a <laughs> symphony orchestra. You would have the skills to do it. The question is Yeah, very I think for a month, that would be extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Frank, how about you? What would you do for a month? I think I would like to be president of the United States for a month, and that way I could release whoever's tax records I wanted to release, and I could uh, make some changes that I think needed to be made, and then maybe it would go back at the end of the month, but I would be very busy fixing things <laughs> for a wow. month. Yeah, I can imagine so. See, uh-huh. we, we both have delusions of grandeur. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. I would never want that job. How about you? I've come across this question before, and I think my answer remains the same. I'd like to be a jet fighter pilot. Oh, my. I love to fly, first of all. I I used to fly planes before I got too scared (laughs) to do it in my my old age. uh, Um, I, I, I got a fear of landing, and I couldn't get rid of it. It was like the yips. In putting and golf, I, I, oh. I just I just could not. But not when you're get flying in a plane. It. Just when you're flying the plane. Flying the plane. Oh. Yeah. I went up in a helicopter for the river tour, actually. Oh. Yeah, and 150 miles an hour racing over the landscape below. And wow. Yeah, and we got over in Navy Pier. And we're doing some shots, and I'm looking at the monitor, and then I have peripheral vision stuff, and I'm trying to talk in the headset to the cameraman, and he's asking me questions, and I'm not answering because I'm vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So the idea of flying a plane is not... Uh, it's low on your yeah, list. Low on your yeah, list. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play one more. I only have a couple left. Right. You pull one. All right. Considering all the big screen movies that you have ever seen, oh my Lord. <laughs> and that, that's a lot, probably. Which one do you believe had the greatest emotional impact on you? Well, I think you've answered this. Is it Potemkin? Well, it had a huge impact on me, but emotional impact... I used to talk about a film called Lady Bird, Lady Bird by Ken Loesch, I think, which is about a woman whose children are being taken away from her by the state. And it was an emotionally devastating film because he doesn't romanticize this person. She's a single mom who wants to live a life and has limited means. And at one point, um, in order to go out and sing in a club, I think is what she wants to do. She, her kids are they're in a shelter. She takes says goodnight to the kids and locks them in the room and there's a fire and hence the title Lady Bird, Lady Bird, right? Fly away home. And so then every time she has children, the state arrives in these nightmare scenarios and takes the child. And, you know, she remarries oh. and she finds loving people. And I mean, it's just, it was emotionally... Oh, 
three. Frank, um, I know you've seen thousands of movies. Yeah, and a lot of them have real impact on me. I have two come to mind right now. One is a kind of Lonergan movie, uh, You Can Count on Me. And I also am very moved by Sideways. I think there's some gorgeous scenes in there, and it's also hilarious. So I think if you can get someone to laugh really hard and then bring a tear, that's, you know. But I do get more moved by shows that I'm watching or things that I'm reading than I do in movies. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but how about you? Well, you mentioned Kenneth Lonergan. I think Manchester by the Sea mm. was really impactful. Speaking of your family burning up. Yeah. And another film that just stays with me forever is uh, the film of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're crazy people, and they're so mean to each other, but there's something about the end tenderness of that movie that just devastates me every time. Every time. I'm a big Mike Nichols fan, too. So Cool. Well, we end our show every episode, Dan, with a segment that we used to call something, but I've renamed it now. I think Um, for the better. I'm going to call it I'll Be Seeing You. This is a celebration of a life of someone that we've recently lost. Mm. And today we're going to talk about John Singleton, screenwriter and film director whose 1991 debut, Boys in the Hood, earned him two Oscar nominations and was considered groundbreaking for its humane depiction of the lives of young black men on the violent streets of South Central Los Angeles. Mr. Singleton was the first African-American and the youngest ever Academy Award nominee for Best Director. He was 24 when he was nominated for the Oscar. Hmm. Two years younger than Orson Welles was when he received a Best Director nomination in 1942 for Citizen Kane. He wrote uh, The Boys in the Hood screenplay, which was also an Oscar contender as a student at the University of Southern California. Do you have screenplays in your closet, uh, Dan, that you wrote when you were at NYU that uh, may see the light of day sometime? I found recently, for the second time in the last 10 years, cleaning the basement, a pile of, I don't know, I don't know 12, 20 pages of some kind of a piece of writing I was attempting to do. And the first time I crossed paths with it, I called up a friend of mine and said, I found this thing and I have no idea what the hell I was thinking <laughs> at all. I don't understand why I even wrote this. This is in time. And when I found it the second time, I, I looked at it again with more detail and threw it away. I threw it away. I'm thinking this is of no value at all. So I took screenwriting three or four times at NYU in a row. And, and it may be why I am suited to what I do because mm. I love to be with people, hear them, draw them out, witness them, and shape that. And I, I've learned a lot about how to structure things in terms of a story and narrative, and none of that was super clear to me as a younger person. Mm. And the ways it was being taught to me at NYU were, they were too far down the road to help me grow in, I should have been at a place with a slower process, and I probably could have found legs for writing earlier, even though I can write like crazy, I can't necessarily generate that. So you asked me what fiction films I would want to make. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of stories that, deeply intrigue me are the story of um, Danny Sotomayor, who was an AIDS activist in Chicago, and uh, an actor as well, died very young. His partner was Scott McPherson, who wrote Marvin's Room. I'd love a film about Danny Sotomayor. That would be extraordinary. And I also am fascinated by stories like uh, the following, which I guarantee you I will never be making or writing, but oh my God. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons. Yeah. Oh. That is a crazy story. Yeah. And that man's life is... That man... 
I can go into it for a long time, but let's just, here's the headline. The last 36 months of his life, before he was murdered <laughs> by neighbors. <laughs> by neighbors. <laughs> essentially, he married a different woman every month. Mm. Okay, let's just say that. And he did retain his longtime marriage to his first wife, who, when he died, quickly parted ways with the Mormons and went somewhere else. I mean, it, it's just, I, I, the story of Joseph Smith is such an incredible story. So I guess crazy obsessed people interest me. Yeah. In college, John Singleton had won script writing prizes, which led to a three movie deal with Columbia Pictures and six and a half million dollars to make Boys in the Hood. Wow. He was 22. He had never made a movie before and insisted on directing the film. He proved persuasive in negotiations with studio execs. I'm a writer first, and I direct in order to protect my vision, he said. It's my story. I lived it. What sense would it make to have some white boy impose his interpretation on my experience? I love that quote. That makes sense. Mr. Singleton grew up in a rough part of Los Angeles, just a few miles from Hollywood, in fact. His mother's apartment was next to a drive-in theater, and he could watch the movies outside the window. It saved him from a life of delinquency. Boys in the Hood reflected many disparate influences, including Truffaut's The 400 Blows and Rob Reiner's Stand By Me. Well, there's an emotionally impactful film, Stand By Me, both of which featured children forced by tragic circumstances to confront the starker world of adult realities. He assembled his cast that included Cuba Gooding Jr., Angela Bassett, and Lawrence Fishburne. He also recruited Ice Cube, then known primarily as a hip-hop performer, who was skeptical of the young director, but Mr. Singleton exuded such confidence that the singer read the script and showed up for a second audition, which I'm sure made the Columbia executives much more conducive to giving this guy the directing chair. Mm -hmm. Mr. Singleton filmed on location in neighborhoods beset by violence in which drugs and police brutality were rife, yet he described the movie as my American graffiti. Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> My coming of age story, he said. He enlisted local gang members to add an extra edge of realism to the clothes and the dialogue. I had not watched this movie in many, many years. Yeah, I when Boys in the Hood was released, it was considered a breakthrough in its depiction of a world previously overlooked by Hollywood filmmakers. Mr. Singleton lost the directing Oscar, however, to. Frank? I don't know. Not to me, you know. 1991? Not, and not to Kevin Costner. <laughs> not to Kevin Costner. <laughs> or Clint was Eastwood. That, or was that uh, the Hannibal Lecter? It was. Uh, oh, Jonathan yeah. Demme Jonathan for yeah, Silence yeah. of the Lambs yeah. and the screenplay Oscar to Callie Corey for Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. To far more mixed critical results, however, Mr. Singleton went on to direct films including Poetic Justice with Tupac Shakur and Janet Jackson and Rosewood about the massacre of residents of a predominantly black town in 1920s Florida. That's a great film, actually. Uh, John Daniel Singleton was born in January of 1968 in Los Angeles. His father Mm. managed a pharmacy. His mother worked in pharmaceutical sales. Well, that's kind of like collaborating, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He lived alternately with both parents who were not married. Drawn to movies at an early age, Mr. Singleton recalled accompanying his mother to see Cooley High, a 1975 film about high school friends with a tragic end. With Jackie Taylor. With Jackie Taylor. Uh, Yeah, Black Ensemble Theater, she's in the film. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I think another film that was influential for him was The Breakfast Club. 
Oh. He found the uh, story of those disparate people coming together and kind of forming friendships yeah. and relationships to misfits. be absolutely fascinating. I looked at my mother after going to Cooley High, and I said, why are you crying? And she said, because it's such a good movie. So I started thinking, when I get to make a movie, I got to make people cry. I got to make them feel something. Yeah, that's so true. Mr. Singleton never recaptured the early acclaim of Boys in the Hood, which the Library of Congress's National Film Registry placed on its list of culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant films. I did not know that. But he said his filmmaking dreams had been fulfilled. Uh, John Singleton was only 51. Yeah. That's, that's too bad. Yeah. That's a loss. Boys in the Hood was revolutionary at its time and launched him into the pantheon of other black filmmakers who were working then. He opened some Mario doors, Van yeah. Peebles, yeah. Spike Lee yep. Yep. was beginning his career then. Well, if you like what you hear on Booth One and you'd like to help us bring lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like Daniel Andres mm-hmm. here. You can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's O-N-E.com, Frank. Yes, it is. And click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would, of course, be greatly appreciated. Dan Andres, thank you for being our guest on the booth today. Absolutely. My pleasure. I uh, thank you so much for asking me. It's I can't to wait to uh, see the next in your series of stage players. When do you say that they're going to begin airing? Well, the week of May twentieth. Oh, next May week, twenty second. Yeah. Yeah, so by soon, the time this soon. episode comes out, yeah, you'll be are. able to see those. Yeah. They're on the website right away, and then they'll air for a month, and then they'll stay on the website but what'll happen is we'll put them back on the air in September for the theater season so awesome. at that point all 20 plus of them will be more than 25 and these are minute things between shows yeah. before yeah. Masterpiece Theater starts or whatever there'd exactly. be one of those okay. so cool. it'll Great. be all over the darn airs then ah, how wonderful yeah. well visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program for Booth One and Daniel Andres this is Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo saying so long and keep listening Mm-hmm.